Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher in fabulous Las Vegas, joined here by a friend, uh, an Irishman, a, a Unibet poker ambassador, He's also a very accomplished poker player with over a million dollars in live earnings to his credit. He's also the author of not one, not two, but three poker strategy books, the newest of which is called Endgame Poker Strategy, the ICM book. You guys know by now who I'm talking about. It's Dara O'Carney. Did I say it right? You said it perfectly. Okay, great. I was literally thinking, which variation of wrong is he going to go? Because people never get it right, and you got it. You absolutely got it perfect. All right, so points for me <laughs> right off the bat. It's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in two years. How yeah. have you been? Yeah, I know. It's been. I was thinking about just how long it's been since I've seen everybody. Like it's amazing coming over here to Vegas and seeing you know people like yourself. It's it feels like a lifetime ago, um, and yet at the same time, not really that long because it's the last WSOP. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think I was going to come here because uh, we didn't think the travel restrictions would be lifted in time. Then they were literally just lifted just so that it became like worthwhile for us to come over. Yeah. And when that happened, they actually literally changed the WSOP schedule. I mean, the schedule that was released a few months ago ended up being altered in many ways just to accommodate people like yourself um, coming from Europe so that you could have a chance to play in the main event. So... Uh, before we get into all of that, I want to know what it was like for you during the pandemic. First of all, let me say you look great. Like you've been exercising, you're taking care of yourself. Uh, many people that I haven't seen for two years, it looks like I haven't seen them for 10. <laughs> <laughs> but you, it looks like it's been less than two years. So what's the secret? Yeah, um, I've basically just had like a very good routine at home. I haven't had to travel. I've always found since I started that it's the traveling, it's the trips that are the big disruption uh, to my to my routines. When I'm at home, I eat very healthily. I exercise six out of seven days a week um, and I just get into a nice routine. And it's kind of been like that for the, the, the pandemic. Um, I played a lot more online um, to sort of make up for the fact that I couldn't play live. I've been sort of hard at work on the content as well. Obviously, the, the new book came out. But in addition to that, we continued the chip race with David and we actually launched a new um, YouTube show called The Lock-In because um, we kind of felt that there was a sort of a demand. People were stuck at home and they wanted uh, they wanted more poker content. Um, so been, it's probably been the busiest one and a half years of my life, um, just in terms of like the number of hours that I work. Because I have always found with the live stuff that like I love going and playing live poker, mostly just for meeting to meet people. But it, it is kind of draining and it gets me out of my regular sleep pattern and usually when I go home, I'm sort of, I need a few days recovery. Um, not having to travel for 20 months basically meant that there was never that disruption. So I just had, you know, good, solid routines. Yeah, well, it's been a solid 27 months since the last live World Series of Poker. Unless you count that little, you know, tarnished final table <laughs> that they put together last year. And then one of the players tested positive and couldn't even play. Uh, and I don't know what the viewership was like, but I didn't really tune into ESPN for that final table myself. No, it seemed like we had, we had no main event last year, and also so many main events. Um, <laughs> there, there, there was there was some uh, poor. I think he was Bulgarian guy who thought he won the main event, and it turned out he hadn't. Well, uh, yeah, because they originally marketed uh, WSOP in their infinite wisdom, marketed the online main event as though the winner of that would be the online. Or the the world champion would be would be online. Well, then they have this whole other thing, and then of course you know Damian Salas wins. So there's all sort of uh, just controversy like the whole year, and the same is true in other games. Of course, baseball had like a sixty game season here in the states. Uh, you know the football season, half the games got rescheduled. That pandemic, like let's just do an entire do over <laughs> of 2020. Forget it ever happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I feel it's very much like that. It's it's, it's like that famous uh, D Dallas season, which went so seriously wrong that they just started the next season with one of the characters coming out of the shower, and the whole previous season was just a dream. It was all a dream. <laughs> it was all a dream. <laughs> That's yeah. it. They jumped the shark. Yeah. 
<laughs> so they just said, let's just pretend it was all a dream. But uh, this is real. I mean, uh, this World Series is real. They have over 6,000 players in the main event. A lot of the uh, events have been honestly better attended than I had expected them to be. Um, you know, before you got the news that you'd be allowed to travel to, um, you know, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. I think we can all agree on that part, at least. <laughs> uh, but before they opened up the uh, the border, as it were, to European travelers, um, did you kind of have any thoughts or predictions or speculation on what this WSOP was going to look like? Yeah, I, I remember when it was announced way back when we all assumed the travel restrictions would be lifted by then. And, and the sort of buzz was this is going to be the biggest WSOP ever because there's, there's such a pent up demand. So many recreationals back home in Ireland were saying, you know, I've always wanted to go to the WSOP. This is going to be the year because we've been stuck at home for 20 months. So I thought it was going to be genuinely massive. I thought like it, it might actually break all records. Then obviously we realized travel restrictions are going to be lifted in time. And, you know, WSOP had to make the call on whether they were going to allow unvaccinated people or not. And since they decided no unvaccinated people, that was going to cut numbers as well. So there was a period where I thought it's actually going to be very, very muted and the numbers are going to be way down. Um, then it started and the numbers were decent. Um, I mean, I think most events were down 25, 30% of what they expected. Um, but once we heard the travel restrictions were lifted and the Europeans were going to be able to travel and the WSOP allowed us to get here in time for um, to, to get into the main event, which, which was a huge thing because we were like debating, you know, we knew that the 8th was the, the, the likely date it was going to be lifted. At that point, you couldn't get into the main event if you came over on the 8th. So we were like, is it really worth coming over just for the other stuff? Um, and most people said no. But once it became clear that we could actually get over here in time for the WSP main event, there was a late surge. Um, which was very much reflected in the flight prices, I have to say. Oh, yeah. So they jacked them up on you guys, yeah. huh? Yeah. They said, well, if you guys really want to travel on the very first day that you're allowed to, then you must be willing to pay a pretty substantial premium for that. Yeah. In fact, a few friends of mine even traveled the day before, but the flight wasn't going to land in the States until until the travel restrictions were lifted. So this, this is one of the few times you don't want your, your flight to be early. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what happens if you show up before the actual like midnight cutoff or whatever? We actually debated that because there was one flight we were looking at which was going to get us in like an hour before the deadline. And we were like, can we just hang around in like <laughs> customs? Not go through customs yeah. for an hour? Are they going to look at these two Irish guys who don't seem to be in any hurry to do anything and are carrying lots of bags? So we thought, no, no, we'll just, we'll just play it safe and make sure we get here later on the 8th. Yeah. Okay, so you uh, you made it over. Uh, you told me before we started recording that you did not have a quick and easy uh, travel itinerary. Are there no direct flights from Dublin to Las Vegas? Um, there are, but <laughs> um, you would have to pay um, roughly six times what we paid for our oh, very yeah. circuitous flight. So, um, also, David doesn't live in uh, in Dublin anymore. He lives in Malta now. So we found a route which was by far the cheapest. It was um, London, San Fran, San Fran back to Vegas. So not really too far out of the way. Um, and David could fly to Mo from Malta to London and I could fly from Dublin to London and, and then we could get on the same flights. So that, I think that was the best call. Unfortunately, when we got to San Fran, that was the point we were entering the US and all the new res restrictions, regulations came into effect. They had to check all our documentation, our vaccinations. We also had to have COVID tests in the previous 72 hours. Um, so, you know, everybody on the plane was European. So it was a very long line. We thought we weren't going to make a connection, but I think that in the end, they delayed the flight. Um, I'm pretty sure because there would have been nobody on the flight. Yeah, nothing had like gone. an empty plane flying to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it was literally all Europeans who had come from London uh, to San Fran and, and were now going back to Vegas. So, yeah, it was. And the annoying thing was when I kind of got slow rolled because when I arrived in Dublin Airport, Dublin Airport is one of the best airports in the world, one of the most efficient. It wins European Airport of the Year almost every year. And the staff were really good there. They were like going up and down telling us all the forms we had to fill. But then when I got to the counter and I, you know, all the document was presented, I was like, so my um, my bag will be go through to Vegas. Yeah, no problem. I won't have to show this other documentation elsewhere. They're yeah, no problem. You've, you've done it all here. We get to London. They force us to show all the documents again. And they tell us your bag's going to not go to Vegas. It'll be getting off in San Fran. You're going to have to go out, collect your bag, come back in. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and it no, was like, no. oh, my God, that means I'm going to have to show I'm going to have to show the documents all over again. So, yeah, it was. It was, and then 
you know, flying ten and a half hours, which was the longest flight, obviously, London to San Fran, in economy class, wearing a mask, was not a lot of fun either. Oh, yeah. Masking and travel, uh, it's no fun. I mean, uh, I'm pretty tired of wearing masks anyway. It's just, uh, at this point, the infection rate is like below 0.05%. I think we can probably just go ahead and take the masks off, at least if we're not like immunocompromised or like having some sort of you know, a pre-existing condition. I think people should be, it should be optional. That's just, that's just my opinion. You're nodding. I feel like you're agreeing with that. Yeah, yeah. I certainly don't don't enjoy wearing the mask. And, you know, I'm double double vaccinated. I was actually tested for COVID 96 hours ago. So there's very, very little risk that I can spread it to anybody. Yeah, well, you and I are both unmasked here in my hotel room. So, I mean, obviously I trust that that either you're okay or my immune system can handle (laughs) being in a room alone with you. You can handle Irish COVID if if it came over on the plane. Can you imagine Donald Trump calling it the Irish flu? (laughs) It's the Irish flu now. All right, well, I want to get to all your stuff, but you've mentioned someone twice that actually hasn't been introduced here on the podcast. I'm wondering if some of my listeners might wonder, who is this David guy that uh, Derek keeps bringing up? So let me tell them. Um, you have a wonderful podcast of your own. It's called The Chip Race, and uh, it's you and David Lappin. And uh, you guys actually won the award for Best Podcast at the Global Poker Awards, which uh, congratulations on that. And you guys do a great job. It's very professional. Uh, it's sound. The sound quality is amazing. The guests that you guys get, I mean, it's a who's who. It's everybody has been on your show. So uh, that's wonderful. Talk a little bit about how that partnership started between you and him. Sure. Um, we, we both started playing poker around the same time, 2006, 2007, and we were both predominantly online players. So we had encountered each other online a few times before we met in person. At the time, David was actually living in the States in Connecticut um, with his partner at the time, who was an American online player. Um, he moved back around 10 years ago. Um, or it's fair to say he hit the Irish poker scene like a bomb. Um, he he's very loud. He's very uh, very opinionated. Gregarious. Gregarious. Yeah. Vivacious. Yes. Let's, let's, let's use the nice words. Um, he uh, obnoxious. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Uh, he. I mean, yeah. He hates when I when I when I describe it like this. But I my my, my distinct mem- memories. He had literally no friends, and I was like, somebody needs to take this guy under his wing and, and be friendly with him. So you were a good Samaritan. <laughs> you like you helped him yeah, when he needed but a friend. I also, have to admit that he was very entertaining always from the start. So we went to we started traveling to tournaments because we were playing kind of the same t- live tournaments, and um, it was always just a barrel of laughs um, hanging out with him. Um, going to tournaments with him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that's kind of how it started. It was just a very, very close friendship. Um, and then how the um, how the podcast started was a few years later. His best friend, who wasn't a poker player, worked for a company which did sort of niche podcasts in different sports. They had like a cricket one, a horse racing one, a Gaelic football one. And Rob, David's friend, said, "Why don't you guys do a poker one?" And they were like, "Yeah, that's a good idea. A lot of poker players out there." And he said, OK, well, I know the two guys who you can get to do it. Um, so we, we came in to do that. It was at that point, it was just an Irish poker podcast only. The focus was completely on Ireland. Um, but we actually built up a, a bit of an audience in the UK as well in the first season. Then, unfortunately, the company uh, went out of business. And so our podcast sort of wound up. And a couple of years later, we were approached by Unibet to uh, to become a brand ambassadors for them. And during the discussions on what we could bring them, we said, oh, we used to have this podcast um, we could possibly bring back. So once Uni- we started as Unibet ambassadors, we brought the chip rest back. Now the focus was no longer on Ireland. We were looking UK and, 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 and the world generally. Um, and it's just gradually it just gradually built over the next few years to the point where I mean, we, first of all, we were really surprised even to be nominated for the GPI award. We were, we were joking that we were the to- the token European um, nominee, right, so, right. so that it didn't look like equal it. time. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But we were like, well, there's no there's no way we're winning this. It's like the foreign language film that gets nominated <laughs> for the Oscars. Um, to the point that David didn't even watch the ceremony. We certainly didn't travel to it. We were like, we're not flying all the way to Las Vegas to watch uh, Remco or somebody else pick mm-hmm. up an award. Um, so we were stunned when we won at the time, uh, and but it was it was it was very heartening. And what's happened over the course of the podcast is the audience has obviously diversified. Now, by far, the biggest country in terms of numbers is the US because that's you know US is poker mad. 
And we're very heartened by the fact that Americans are prepared to listen to two Irish guys wittering on about poker in indecipherable accents. Um, because we were actually told at the start, we were advised, don't try to get the American audience because the Americans will not listen to Europeans. They, they don't do accents. They won't understand your humor. And it's we were, true. It's true. Generally speaking, Americans are turned off uh, by content that that is in a foreign language or with a foreign accent. Um, but there have been some exceptions, like your podcast and a, an old movie that I can remember from the 90s called The Commitments. Yeah. Do you know that movie? Very good Irish movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was a huge hit here. So, I mean, my opinion is we don't like to hear the accent, but if we can, if we if we can stomach the accent, if the content is good enough, so that's that's kind of where where we're at with that. But actually, uh, I'm only playing because I really enjoy your accent very much. Uh, yeah, no, thank you very much. No, the, the the most frequent comment we used to get from some guys who were like into lots of podcasts was that they 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 were able to listen to a lot of podcasts by listening to. 2x or 3x speed but in, but in our case it was 0.5x <laughs> slow it down <laughs> so i can understand what the heck these guys are saying yeah well this is amazing you have written three books in three years which is no easy feat i mean that's an incredible task i mean just the fact that you have your your podcast which comes out is it weekly is it every week uh, we put something out every week yeah, yeah either, something every either week. the chip race or the uh, or the lock in the, the oh, youtube right. version yeah. so you've got your your youtube thing you've got your your audio thing which you can find anywhere guys check it out the chip race it's uh really wonderful but we also have these three books there's one book all about uh, satellite strategy which uh, I think a lot of people have gotten way better at satellites from reading that book. Uh, and then you came out with one that I really enjoyed about PKOs. Uh, many of my listeners know that I've actually done pretty well on the PKOs, PKOs that I've been, uh, 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 that have been available to me on sites like ACR and whatever. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they had a venom PKO with a $5 million guarantee. Big one. I, I went pretty deep in that. I love the PKO format because I I am inclined towards taking more risks when I play. It's interesting to me, though, that someone who is an expert enough in the satellite world, which really rewards choosing when to not take risks, yeah. is also an expert in the PKO, which is a little bit more of a uh, aggressive, you know, by nature sort of format. So talk to us about how you can be such a chameleon before we talk about your third book. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, essentially, like over the course of my career, I've had different specializations and it's always been what I thought was the most profitable at the time. So, you know, I started uh, as a limit cash player because a lot of online was limit cash. I moved into sit and goes. Um, they were very profitable for a while. Then I moved into satellites, um, which were very profitable. And then, and then I moved into normal MTTs. A couple of years ago, obviously, the, the, the online market started to change. More and more tournaments um, were PKOs. They became a very popular format very quickly, exactly for the reasons that you said. They're just a lot more fun. They're more gambly. You get to play a much more aggressive style. They reward that. A lot of the things that annoy us about normal tournaments, like stalling, makes no sense in a PKO. You don't want to stall in a PKO. You're stalling in a PKO, you, the stacks with the other tails are just getting bigger. You're not going to win bounties. So... PKOs just took off like wildfire online, um, particularly uh, on the European sites. I actually resisted them for a while, and I think most of my generation did. They were like, oh, this we don't like this new format. It's just gambling. Everybody just gets it all in, and you see who wins. And, I mean, I think this probably happens every time there's a new format. The people who are invested and have learned the old formats... <laughs> castigate the new format as well there's no skill in that that's just nonsense well it's like when they changed the uh antes and they started saying we're going to do big blind ante and some of the old school players were like that's never going to work you can't do that because <laughs> everyone has to ante otherwise people could just fold their way to the final table they didn't understand that it's an equal distribution of the antes it's just in yeah. a different timeliness right yeah absolutely and uh, and this happens every time so after i'd written the satellite book and and, and the satellite book was sort of a no brainer i mean because that was my speciality for so long and yeah. i and i was seen as one of the top satellite players um it was it actually wasn't my idea it was my co-author's idea barry Carter. Barry had written a couple of great books with Jared Tender on the mental game and he was looking around for another book to write and he had, he had written a piece called um, the I think it was called the 10 poker books that haven't been written yet but should be and one of them was a satellite book so he said it's kind of strange that there's no book on satellites 
And then he thought of me as the person who was probably best qualified to write it. So he came to me and said, would you be interested in writing a satellite book with me? Now, at the time, I kind of moved on from satellites uh, to regular MTT. So I thought, okay, this is a good time to sort of like let the secrets out of the bag. Um, So it was kind of natural that I would do satellites. And, you know, the cover of that book has somebody folding aces. So it it kind of makes the point that this is a very different format. It's different than any other poker uh, style where you wouldn't want to fold the nuts, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, years ago, and I love this satellite book. I love the way everything is broken down. And it's not overly mathematical. It's it's also sort of uh, presented in a logical way so that you don't need to be, uh, you know, a, 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 like a, a master's degree or PhD in math to understand it. But the math is solid as well. So it's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, Years ago, before your book came out, many years ago, I used to be, uh, I used to work with Cake Poker, which you might not even remember. I do remember Cake Poker, yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah. So one year I won four satellites uh, to major events, including the World Series of Poker, uh, in one year, which was, uh, they told me, a record. No one had ever done that before. So I ended up going to all these live events with them on their dime, or not on their dime, but on on my opponent's dimes. And my only real approach to satellite play was if uh if you have twice the average stack and more than half the remaining field gets a seat fold everything and that was it i didn't have that i never read that anywhere i've sort of figured that out in my head i was like i probably have a 95 percent chance of getting a seat if i just fold every single hand from now until this dumb thing is over and uh yeah, I applied that to live satellites, and, and that, that was all you needed back then. And then your stupid book came out, and now it's more nuanced. So thanks for nothing, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, you could actually blame Carlos for this. Uh, Carlos Welsh, uh, our mutual yeah. friend. Uh, I was staying with Andrew Brokos and Carlos one year here in Vegas, and Carlos was going off to play a satellite, and, he's, and he knew I was pretty good at satellites. So he said, uh, give me the sort of 20-minute guide to satellites. So I sat down, and I, I broke down all the major concepts, including the one you've, you, 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 you've just talked about. And off I went to bed. Carlos came back. He was really happy he'd won his satellite. But not Carlos being Carlos, he hadn't just left at that. He'd written up everything I'd said into uh-huh. a very well-structured document, document, which was actually the first content that I gave to Barry when, when we talked about writing the book. And, and actually, Carlos um, coined some of the phrases that we used, like chance of cashing. Um, we, we, had a, we had a lot of juvenile fun about talking about cock size. Um, but uh, COC baby yeah, yeah I, uh, the only time I've ever regretted that is when I had to, to had to do a talk on the book for a ladies group and I was like I'm, I'm, I'm not referring to it as no, cock size I think we can come up with something else we can <laughs> yes. we can just call it the chance of cashing yes. never abbreviate it in the room yeah. full of ladies yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah so that was that, that, that was basically um, where that came from and then the, the PKO was at the time that we were writing the book, you know, online world had moved towards PKOs and I realized I can't just stick my head in the sand and um, play the regular tournaments. They're getting smaller and smaller. I'm going to have to learn this new format. So most of my own study was 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 being done in PKOs. And while I was doing that study, I discovered some stuff which I didn't think was was out there. So after the first book came out and it was a it, it was successful, Barry said we should do another book. Um, what will we do it on? And we both agreed that PKO was, was best because I had just studied it. It had become very popular online. But we also thought that it was interesting to, to sort of, we had come up with this concept of a variant style, um, which is that in a normal tournament, let's say in a normal tournament, you, you're, you know, you don't, you don't want variance to be too high. You don't want it to be too low. You just, that's sort of the average. In a satellite, you sort of wind it down. You want really low variance. So you take lots of low variance spots. You don't want to take big risks for lots of chips. But in a PKO, you swing it the other way. You go for high variance. You want to gamble for a stack, so you cover lots of people. You want to gamble for bounties, etc., etc. So we thought it'd be interesting to go from a format sort of where we're talking about lowering variance completely and taking low variance lines to one where you're always trying to take the high variance lines. Um, so that's kind of where it came from. It was just it was interesting to us to try and do something which you know is was very different, but at the same time there was actually very little content out there on PKOs at the time, and it was more difficult in the sense that we were sort we felt we were like breaking ground like with satellite it was literally just me do a brain dump and we we put the book out but this was us stuff figuring stuff out as we went along basically and the book sort of changed as uh, over the course of the year um but yeah we were very happy with the result when it came out um 
And, and then we were like, well, what do we do next? And we thought, well, both of our books have essentially been about ICM. Um, you know, PKOs where you have this additional bounty thing which messes with ICM and satellites were, which are the most extreme ICM format. So why don't we just do a general ICM book, mostly aimed at people playing normal tournaments? Um, uh, yeah, so that, that and, 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 and it, it has a kind of a trilogy feel to it uh, because of that. It does, because you had one extreme than the other, and now we put it all together yeah. in your newest book, Endgame Poker Strategy, which actually just came off the press like last month, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like hot on, in my hands. It's like, it's like really, I appreciate you bringing me my own personal copy here. I hope I can get you to autograph it for me before you leave. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, yeah, it's got a guy... A uh, picture of a of a poker player on the front cover. Here he he looks very deep in thought, and he's got words all around his head. Game selection, post flop, bubble play, laddering, final table deals. It is the ICM book. So that's your subtitle, the ICM book. Now my listeners know that ICM is something to which I do not pay enough attention because I just want to go for the gold bracelet all the time. Yep even when they're not awarding one because it's just a $5 online <laughs> turbo or something. Uh, so, you know, talk to me kind of generally about uh, pretend that I've been playing poker for years and years and I don't even know what ICM stands for. What is what is this book going to do for me? Sure. Uh, what, we call it the ICM book, but it, but ICM is just one model of how to how to approach the end of tournaments, and it's an imperfect model. And it stands for independent, independent chip, chip model, model right? Yeah. So that means that every chip in play has a, a a theoretical dollar value assigned to it, right? Correct. So talk to uh, some of my listeners that might not even get that. Like, what what does that mean exactly? What do you mean? There's a dollar value? Isn't the prize for finishing? in a certain spot. So just explain ICM sure. a little bit. Yeah. Okay. One, one way to think about this is uh, to take a fairly simple example. Imagine there's 100 runners in a tournament and they're all paying $1,000. So there's $100,000 in the prize pool. And they all, get, they all start with a starting stack of 1,000 chips. So at the start of the tournament, every chip is worth a dollar. Right. Um, they buy 1,000 chips. They, they pay $1,000. They get 1,000 chips. Um, so each chip is worth a dollar. Now let's say the, we get to the end of the tournament, and the winner gets twenty-five thousand. Say that's say that's the first prize. Now he has all the chips. He has a hundred thousand chips. He's going to get twenty-five thousand for them. He's not getting a hundred thousand. So now the chips are only worth twenty-five cents each. Um, th that's sort of the first point. Chips actually lose value as as uh, as you go further and further into the tournament. The other important, most important strategic point to realize is that when you double your chip stack in a tournament you do not double the dollar value of your chip stack. You double your chances of winning the tournament because you have twice as many chips now, but you don't double your chance of coming second, third, fourth. You can't double your chances of coming every position because you have to come one of those positions. In <laughs> right. fact, your chances of coming some of the positions go down. Um, so that means that your share of the prize pool doesn't double. Yes, your chance of winning doubles, and if winning is the only thing that you care about, then by all means, show caution to the wind. But you will, you you pay a price for that. Um, um, so, in 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 some extreme situations, you know you might double your chip stack, but it only increases the the dollar value of your equity by say twenty percent. So that means if you get all in, you're risking your entire equity hundred to gain twenty. Right. So. It's no longer a case of like, well, if I'm getting the right pot odds, I should call. Because, no, because you're not going to win 100. You're going to win 20. So you need to be like a five to one favorite to get all in in that spot. And that's where the strategy gets really, really warped. Because chips that you lose are worth more than chips that you win. That's the way it's always been explained, like, you know, by the early authors, David Sklansky and people like that. And I think that that took me many years to really understand that as a poker concept that the chips that I'm losing are worth more than the chips that I'm winning, which also might explain why losing a tournament feels so much worse than winning a tournament feels good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's very much the case. And somebody told me, I don't know whether this is true or not, but somebody told me that every year in the main event, um, when the bubble bursts, um, I think roughly 15% of the field have less than starting stack. Um, now, if you think about it, that means that they paid 10000 uh, at the start for a starting stack and they've actually lost chips, but now they have it, uh, whatever the min cash is, 15000 15, locked up, yeah. and they have the chance to ladder further. So that, that, that's also a very graphic illustration of how the value of chips change. Now, the, the, the chip leaders, on the other hand, they, you know, they might have 
two hundred starting stacks, but their but their their stack at that point is not going to be worth two million. Um, uh, so it's almost like there's a penalty for for, for winning <laughs> chips, yeah. um, which is a kind of a weird way to think about it. But yeah, just surviving in a tournament, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of equity in that. I mean, all of the value from tournaments, all of the reward from tournaments that aren't bounty tournaments or PKOs or any other form of bounty tournaments comes from survival. So yeah. that's why those chips that you lose are worth so much more than the ones that you win because you do need at least one chip and one chair. <laughs> right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it was Mike Caro famously said he, he hated tournaments because it, it, um, it punished the winner. The winner ends up with all the chips, but he doesn't get, end, end up with all the money. Well, this is what I've been saying for years. My listeners know I believe all tournaments should be winner take all. <laughs> and then your book would be obsolete and meaningless <laughs> and absolutely of no value to anyone. So uh, I guess for your sake, I hope they don't do that. I don't think we're in much danger of that happening anyway. No, I can't imagine anybody entering the the, the main event. And and even if, even if that was the, the case in theory... I'm sure in practice, massive deals will be done. I mean, we've all played those 10-seater single-table satellites at the WSOP where there's supposed to be only one winner, but they're nearly always chopped two or three ways. Not when I'm playing. <laughs> Come on, and if, if, if I were in the If I were in the main event and it were a winner-take-all tournament, you guys are not making any kind of deal until I don't have the chip lead anymore. <laughs> I could tell you that, which would probably put a big target on my head. But yeah, that's just my fantasy world. I think there should be only one winner. But uh, that's partly why I need to read your new book so that I can understand these ICM concepts better. And if anything that Dara was just saying confused you or you'd like to learn about any other uh, concepts about the uh, end game poker strategy, which is when you are in or near the money and how your strategy should be changing. Uh, we want you to check out his book, End Game Poker Strategy. I'm assuming they can probably find that on a website called Amazon. Anywhere else? That is correct, yeah. It's, it's on Amazon. That's the first place we put it on. It's, it's on some of the other places as well. But this is more Barry, uh, Barry work than my, my work, but it's on places like iTunes, Google, oh, cool. Google, uh, Kobo. There's a few other strange names, Nook or something. All right. So if you're in the growing ranks of those who are trying to not give 80% of our income to Amazon, you can find this book in other places. Just uh, check it out. And uh, okay, so I want to get to some strategy. I know we just we yeah. don't have much time, uh, but you said that you had a hand that you wanted to run past me, and I can't wait to talk some poker with you. Yeah, um, I thought... Um, since the main event has just happened, I would talk about the most interesting hand I had in the main event. And it was a hand which I played very, very differently from how I would certainly have played it online or even how I would play it possibly in other tournaments. Okay, so set the stage for us because you flew 20 hours, basically, to four different cities, met up with your friend in London, had to go through the customs and the, and the testing and the filling out the forms and every single stop. You had to wait in San Francisco again, go get your bags, blah, blah, blah. You finally get here. And then you don't play, right? Well, I mean, we 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 kind of played as quick, as early as we could. We we got here one a.m., two a.m. Um, effectively on Tuesday, so we had missed day one e. Um, our only options were day two a or day one f. We felt that with, with day one f um, having been announced so late. Um, not too many Americans would want to play that. It would probably be all the people we were on the plane with who would be playing it. Um, that and they're probably better than we are. <laughs> well, it, it, let's say it didn't seem appealing. But to be honest, the biggest factor was we thought, well, if we play day one F and we get through, we have to play day two B. The very next day. The very next day. Right. And then if we get through that, we have to play day three the very next with day. With no break. With no break. So we thought, okay, well, that's, that's, that's just folly. Uh, so let's go into day two, uh, into the first day two. Um, and we came in with 75 big blinds. Not ideal, but still plenty. Yeah, not bad. And well worth a 20-hour trip. Yeah. Yeah, well worth a 20-hour <laughs> trip. Um, yeah, we, 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 we both said this is going to go one of two ways. We're going to feel incredibly smug when we, when we bag up and get into day three and have our day off, or we're going to be go wandering around shaking our heads and what were we thinking when, what we, were we, thinking? when we bust before the first break. <laughs> yeah, we could have played a whole day one. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so, so to set the scene, this hand was relatively early on my day two way, and I, ha I had made a very good start, a very fortuitous start, I have to say, um, where I, I'm, I, I misclicked live. Um, um, 
I thought I was racing the button with 6-4 suited. It turned out I was calling in under the gun race with 6-4 suited. Oh, big um, difference. Yeah. Quite a big difference. But when the clock comes 5-3-2, no difference. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow. So, Bingo. yeah, we had made a good start and we were up to, to, to 90K. Um, so I think I had about 90 big blinds or so when, when, when this hand started. Um, my table was mixed, uh, to say the least. Um, there were two very good Germans and um, isn't that redundant like you can just say two germans two germans yeah <laughs> even by the standards of germans these guys were were well above average right um and unfortunately one of them was to my immediate left the other one was down the table so and then there were some uh, some recreational type players um who had played presumably the earlier day ones and got through the the, the regular way mm-hmm. so i opened under the gun with pocket kings so far, I have no problem with this. That's good. I, I think this is a good play. All okay right, so far, this. so good. Yeah, I'm okay with the under-the-gun raise with two kings. Yeah. So the German kid to my left, who has been playing hyper-aggro, um, three bets, and I'm already thinking, okay, well, this, this, this could actually be the early bust-out because yeah. I'm not going to be folding kings against this guy. Um, so he three bets, and it folds all the way around to the big blind. And the big blind is just to profile him, uh, roughly my age, Asian American. He's been playing a lot of hands. He he clearly likes to see flops. He's been opening stuff like nine eight offsuit under the gun. Um, his style is kind of like he likes to play to get in cheap before the flop. He does very little three betting. I hadn't seen him four bet once yet. Um, so all of this sort of factored into the hand. So it comes around to him, and I'm watching him, and he looks at his cards. And he immediately starts shaking violently, so violently that I was convinced the last I should say the last time I was in pavilion um, in, in, in the Rio, there was an earthquake. <laughs> I was convinced this was another earthquake. <laughs> so he's having straight up convulsions. He's literally shaking like this. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, I looked around to see if it was an actual earthquake. And then I was like, no, it's just he, he's shaking. So I could see he was tremendously excited. Um, and then he started trying to he he looked at sort of the action first the raise and the and the three bet and i guess he was working out his four bet sizing and he started to amass the chips that he needed to uh to make the four bet um but he kept knocking them over in in, in his excitement and my, my my mind was just screaming this is aces this is aces this is aces um nothing else and uh he eventually made the the four bet and i thought for about 10 seconds i said I believe this is aces, so I am, I am going to just fold here. Um, I can't call the four bet. Uh, and I fold it, and um, the German guy calls. And I think the flop is something like queen, queen, four. Um, and they get it in, and it is aces against jacks. Wow. So you managed to get away from kings before the flop for two, for two in the main blinds. event for two big blinds. So now... How many times in your career have you folded kings before the flop? Um, not counting online. Um, and not counting satellites. Not counting right, satellites, right. obviously. I think this was only the second time. And the, and, and the previous time was very similar. It, it was one of the first um, main events that I played. It was maybe six hours into day one. Um, there was a guy, I'd been at the table all day. Uh, there was a guy I hadn't seen play a single hand yet um, onto the gun. So he raises onto the gun. <laughs> I look down at Kings and I'm like, <laughs> should I set mine? <laughs> should I set mine? What should I do here? I'm like, that, that would be stupid. I clearly have to three bet this hand. So I three bet. It came around to him. He did the most outrageous Hollywood I've ever seen. Yeah. It was like, oh, you're just picking on me now. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You just think you because I'm tight, I'm going to fold. But I'm not going to fold. Raise. Yeah, so okay. Like, okay. Pitch the Kings. Here's my Kings. <laughs> I'm putting him in the muck. And then he, then he like he looks a bit shocked, and then he he confirms that he has the aces, which again um, made me feel better. But, uh, but to be honest, I was happy with my decision anyway. I, I think I can't imagine I would ever do it because another thing is like you know you, like in most of the tournaments you don't even start more than a hundred big blinds deep. Right. So unless you get them right and level one, you're not going to get the chance to sort of get away from them. Yeah. Yeah, so, but here you are buying in on day two. But with that particular action, I mean, this player, who, as you've said, has been uh, kind of a loose, kind of want to see a lot of flops 
on the cheap side kind of guy. He likes to flop and play hands, um, loosey-goosey, whatever. He has seen an under-the-gun raise, followed by a second position, yes. three bet, and now he's having convulsions. If there, <laughs> if there's ever a time in a man's life to throw his kings away, that, that could well be it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, D- David was laughing afterwards, saying that half of the updates he'd read uh, the previous day when we were coming over were people busting with kings against aces early on, um, including uh, Daniel Negreanu. Um, well, my bust out was actually uh, on the the end of day two, kings versus aces, but we didn't get it all in before the flop. We got it all in on a 10 high board on the turn. Yeah. I don't know. I love my hand. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it, it kind of always is a cooler. And, and, yeah. and to be honest, there are not too many spots. Like you're theoretically almost never supposed to fold kings. Right. Because if you're going to fold kings, then you're just so exploitable. Yeah. I mean, no solver is going to tell you to no. throw away your kings before the flop, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and and uh, this, this is the kind of hand that like when I say it to some people, they say, well, wow, that's an amazing fold. And when I say it to some of the kids, they're like, you're just a scared old man. And you, yeah. just, happen, you just happen to be oh, right. I'm just going to four bet you all the time <laughs> yeah. now. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's different strokes for different folks, but, but I, the 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 live tail component played very heavily into yeah. it as well. I mean, if you see those pure convulsions, like even if he looked at kings, he might not have been that excited because it's already been a raise under the gun and a three bet from second. So he's got to be thinking, even if he has kings, he has to be worried that he's about to bust out of the main event with a cooler. Right. That's a brilliant point. That's that that's exactly right. Aces is literally the only hand that, in my opinion, elicits that response. Because, as you said, like, even with kings, people are nervous. You know, most of us don't like kings that much because we remember all the times we've lost with kings. And, you know, you can lose to any old ace rag. Uh, um, so, yeah, aces feels very different from kings. Um, it's Aces is the one hand where, like, the guy knows he has the nuts pre-flop. Yeah. So that's why he's so excited. Yeah. And you two guys are already in there. He's like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get all the chips? <laughs> I'm going to get all these chips because <laughs> these two crazy spew yeah. Europeans. <laughs> Well, that is great. Uh, so, guys, if you want to um, you know, follow Dara, uh, which I highly recommend. He's a great follow on Twitter. Give your handle. Tell him how to spell uh, it's it. It's Dara O'Carney. It's just my name without the apostrophe. So D-A-R-A-O-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Right. So it's not spelled the way we think it would be spelled, O'Carney, yeah. right? So it's D-A-R-A-O-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. On Twitter. And where else can people find you? Tell us again uh, the name of your YouTube show. Uh, the YouTube show is The Lock-In, um, and that's on our channel, The Chip Race, um, where we also put up strategy clips, um, which are from the show itself. Um, I'm also on Instagram. Um, every time I play the seniors, um, all my young friends joke that I'm the only person in the seniors who's on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um um, I tend to put use that as a kind of a dear diary. I just show what I'm doing during the day, which reminds me I haven't actually taken a picture of this yet for my story. But uh, that's sort of a different, uh, very different audience from Twitter. Um, Twitter's kind of, I guess, the main place where I push, you know, links to all the strategy articles that I write, uh, the the podcasts when they come out, all that sort of stuff. Um, and you get involved in your share of the poker Twitter gossip as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not as willing to get to, to get into the mixes as, uh, as David is. David certainly likes a bit of controversy, but uh, yeah, when I do make my opinions known when uh, when when I feel strongly about something, and to me that's what Twitter's for. I mean, we're supposed to share our thoughts and our feelings and our opinions about things, knowing that some of the people that read them might disagree. Mm-hmm. I mean, that we should be able to do that without it devolving into name-calling and life-threatening, but sometimes yeah. it does. <laughs> I agree completely, yeah. No, we're, we're completely on the same page here. I think one of the one of the great horrors that I've seen in, in, in the last few, few years in social media is how people are essentially creating their own bubbles. They're blocking out everybody who doesn't agree with them. Um, they're just following people who do agree with them, and then they're going around thinking, well, this is what everybody thinks. It really isn't. Uh, it's It's very unfortunate. I think you should be able to have a respectful argument with somebody, as I said, as you said, without it devolving into call into name calling. I have lots of friends who have very different opinions from me on politics, on on everything else. We're not less friends. I don't choose my friends. They don't have to pass a doke ideology test where they have to agree <laughs> with me on absolutely everything. Some of my friends have polar opposite views to me on, on on a lot of stuff. I think it's very important that we're able to debate these things. 
that's how you change people's minds. You're not going to change anybody's mind by just surrounding yourself by people who think exactly the same as you do. Yeah, and to me, even if I fail to change someone's mind, uh, I usually feel enriched by learning other people's feelings. You know, like I live in New York City, which is itself a bubble. I mean, the people of New York City, by and large, are of one political mind. And so interacting with people maybe from other parts of the country or other parts of the world where they don't see things as, you know, with the one track way that we do in my most liberal place in in America, uh, it's I think it's healthy for me to be exposed to other points of view, even if at the end of the day I do disagree, just knowing that there are people in the world that see things in this different way than I do allows me to expand my mind. And I, I feel like there's value in that more so than just, you know, all patting each other on the back. We're all on the same team, you know, whether it's about abortion or gun control or, or, or even something silly like who the best hockey team is or something. Like, it's nice to have variety yeah. in my life. So, yeah, that's important to me. And I agree with you that, you know, social media is maybe was originally supposed to be for that, but it's actually turned into quite the opposite. Yeah, 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 I, I agree completely. And I think when you talk to people who have opposite opinions for you, you, you can you can kind of reach a point where you think, well, we, 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 we're going to have to agree to disagree here, but I understand why they think the way they do. And, you know, I'm, I'm no longer certain that I'm right and they're wrong. You, you have to have that uncertainty. And that's something that's important as a poker player as well. Like, you can never think what I think about a hand or what I think about a poker situation is absolutely the truth. You have to be willing to listen to to feedback and allow that doubt to creep into your mind. And I think it's the same in life in general. It's it's a good, healthy attitude to think, okay, I believe this, but it is a belief. It's not an absolute fact. I'm not convinced of this. And, you know, I'm open to being changed. If 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 I learn new facts which contradict that, I'm certainly willing to change my my position. Yeah, well, and this is probably a a great topic for a future episode of this podcast because I'd love to get into this a little deeper with you. I know we're out of time, but, you know, the word opinion, like the word itself by definition means that you're not right. Yeah. It's your opinion. Yeah. A fact can be right, but an opinion cannot, right? Correct. And I remember in the early days of the internet, and I was one of the early adopters, everybody always put, IMO or, or IMHO, I-M-H-O yeah, after yeah. them, and, and 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 it was a much better thing because it was it was made clear. Well, this is my opinion. Now you could say like people used to say back at the time, "Why are you doing that?" It's obvious it's your opinion. You don't have to keep putting it at the end of the thing. But it's but it really isn't because if you stop framing it that way, people start thinking well, you're stating a fact, um, and you know there's, there's a lot of brain chemistry around the fact that you know the brain stores beliefs and facts in the same way and we can we can model the two up so we do need that sort of higher level of um executive process where we go no this isn't actually a fact it's it it feels like a fact because of the way it's in my head but this is an opinion and when you start adding emotion to opinions yeah then they really feel like facts because it's like i feel so strongly this must be the truth yeah but the the fact is it's just your opinion. Absolutely. It's just your opinion. It's, it is just your opinion. And uh, you shouldn't get emotionally attached to your opinions as well. That's, that's, that, that, that's dangerous because then it can feel that when somebody has an opposite opinion, they're actually attacking you rather than just challenging your opinion. Oh, man. See, now this, these are the kind of thoughts that we need to start putting back into the universe. And so that means like everybody knows me. I'm old school. You know, I don't tell you how many big blinds I have. I tell you my M. Okay, I'm old school. And I'll be old school with you. If you want, you and I can start a revolution where every time we express an opinion on Twitter, we put IMO at the end. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm all for bringing IMO back. (laughs) Let's bring it back. All right. Well, uh, Dara, anything else you want people to know before we say goodbye? No, um, I just want to say it's been wonderful coming back to Vegas. So many people have come up to me and said they, they enjoyed the book or they enjoyed the podcast. I'd forgotten how friendly the Americans are. Sometimes you get the feeling when you're watching Americans online or watching on TV that they're a lot, you, you, you basically forget how friendly you guys are. Um, we get a bad rap, but we're not so bad. No, you're really not. <laughs> you're, you're, you're wonderful, open, friendly people. This is, this is uh, one of the best places in the world to play poker. This is the, the, the breeding ground of poker. This is where poker is genuinely mainstream. You go to most European countries, it's like a niche thing, which certain types of people do. 
in America, everybody plays. Yeah, that is true. Um, America is a wonderful place to play poker. Um, unless you're German, and then uh, I want to send a different message. Uh, we don't like Germans here. Uh, if you're German, don't come to Vegas. Uh, stay in Germany and, and leave us alone, okay? <laughs> yeah, and if you do come, play fast. Yeah, yeah, play fast. Stop tanking. All right, well, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you very much for, uh, for coming over and, and hanging out with me tonight and uh, you know, sharing your thoughts. Everybody check out the book. Endgame Poker Strategy and uh, well, I'd love to have you back sometime Dara if that's okay yeah I would love to come back yeah I'd really enjoy this I, I had a feeling I was going to and, and yeah this has been a lot of fun fantastic well for Dara O'Carney and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge I'm Clayton Fletcher thank you so much for listening I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays fold them let them hit me raise it baby stay with me Intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart